So on a completely unrelated note, a concluding message um, for our sermon series um, today. Uh, starting with two questions, right, we presented earlier. Um, what does the life of Jesus say about God, and what do the words of Jesus say about God? And what I'd like to do is I'd like to start out with that passage that we, we had read earlier um, by Leanne, um, because in this passage, we learn really the answer to the first question, and we have an incredible demonstration to the answer to the second question, right? So what does the life of Jesus say about God? Um, again, if Jesus is the perfect representation of God, Right? If you have any questions about God, right, just look to Jesus because that's where you're going to find God. Um, and if everything one needs to know about Jesus is found in Scripture, let's take a look at this passage then one more time. This is 1 John chapter 4. Start with verse 7 and 8. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you're filled with God, the Holy Spirit, right, if you're filled to the brim and if God is love, then like God, you won't be able to do anything but love people, right, because you're, you're filled with love. You don't have anything else there that's going to come flying out accidentally except love because you're filled with love. Continuing in verse 9, listen to this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So we have life because of the love of God, right? You're kind of connecting the dots here. And then in verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, and this, that's a huge statement, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, many take that, that first phrase there, not that we love God, like God loved first, right? We didn't love first. He was the bigger man, right? He, he stepped up to the plate and, and made things right because we wouldn't. Um, now, that's all true, and, it, and it, it's incredibly humbling, but that's really not the point of what John is trying to say here. The point is way, is far more painful, and it's really quite shameful. It's incredibly shameful. Because God is love, he exchanged the son of his life, his one and only son that, whom he loved. He exchanged his life for ours because God is love, and he wants to give us life. Because God is love. Now, here's the shameful part. He was willing to exchange the life of his son for those of us whom on down the road would reject his son, would claim that his son never died, would make all sorts of crazy claims, would ridicule his son. That's the shameful part. In fact, that's what the rest of the world said to the Jewish people. Your God is shameful, right? That he would die for your sins, right? That's not love. That's weakness. That's shameful. And this shameful act of love becomes a stumbling block for so many people. How, how, what kind of God dies for broken, mean, evil people, right? That, that, that's shameful, And again, this act of love becomes a stumbling block. So I think that this, this passage, I think it answers the question, what does the life of Jesus say about God? It just, it screams love. It's like Douglas was saying, it just screams love. So John concludes where he began with the most, I think, reasonable, reasonable response. Very reasonable here. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, again, as I say that phrase, that's a loaded phrase, right? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So if God is love, 
And if that love is most clearly and completely expressed and most understandable in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, then we are perfectly representing God when we are Christ-like, right? You see the logic, the flow of that whole idea, right? We're Christ-like. When we're Christ-like, we perfectly represent God. Now, here's the implication of that last line here, and this is going to kind of sting. We most accurately reflect our love for God by how extravagantly and sacrificially we give to people we don't like, who don't like us and who are not like us. Because that's really it up there, dear friends, since God so loved us, that was the dynamic, right? We did not like him. We were in full rebellion against him, and yet he dies for us. And he's saying, John is saying right here that our love needs to reflect that kind of love. In other words, here's the, here, here's the phrase that's going to stick a little harder. Your relationship with God might need to reflect your relationship with folks that you don't particularly like. And they might not like you. That will be the most honest expression of God in your life. How do you treat people who disagree with you on everything, right? And they've got loud, obnoxious kids and they're always banging on your door and they're, right, what do you, what do, you do about that? Now, if there's a discrepancy between your love for God and your love for people you don't like, then this passage is saying that both of those relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with those neighbors that you don't particularly like, you might need to look at both of those relationships because the way you're treating your neighbor is not the way you love God. And you might need to examine, do you truly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or just kind of, sort of? Now, here's the fun part. Jesus is explaining this whole crazy idea by participating in an ongoing discussions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the elders and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? We, we got to understand as we're looking through the gospels, Jesus is actively engaging. Like he's, it's almost like he's looking forward to it. I've written a couple writers this week and both of them claim that Jesus actually had hope for these religious leaders, right? And that's why he engaged with them. He was thinking that maybe he could actually change their opinions just a little bit. Um, so the Pharisees aren't necessarily the enemy, but they're, they're kind of set up as the, the foil against Jesus and what Jesus concludes and what the, what the Pharisees and the religious leaders conclude. So this discussion that we're about to look at this morning is all part of this ongoing discussion that Jesus is having with the Pharisees on, catch this, the proper interpretation of Scripture right? What is the real meaning behind the text? That's, I mean, throughout scripture, throughout the gospels, Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what they're doing is they're, they're discussing the seven or eight burning issues of the day, right? That's literally what was going on. Marriage, divorce, murder, uh, oaths, um, all these kinds. They, they were the, the questions that, that rocked Jesus's world during that time. Now, our questions today are a little bit different. We have immigration, we have sexual identity, we have racial, you know, all this other kind of stuff going on in, in our world today. But in their world, they had some burning issues that was part of their culture, part of their time, so we're going to jump right into this discussion. Mark chapter 12, verse 20, it says this. One of the teachers of the law had heard them debating. Now, again, Jesus never had any problem with the law. And, and what this passage is going to call it is the written Torah. And you guys have heard of the term Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's what the Hebrews called their first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called Torah. 
Um, and, and again, that, that, that term is loose. It, it could be as minimum as the, the laws that are explained in the book of Exodus, and it could also be the whole, whole five books and, and the rest of the prophets and, and the wisdom writings. So they, they kind of use Torah kind of loosely. Um, but when they spoke about the law, they really were looking at those first five books, right? And again, the problem wasn't the way that the religious leaders interpreted the law. In fact, actually, Jesus sometimes agrees with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he actually agrees with their interpretations. Um, but the problem that Jesus had was the way the law was applied in everyday life. If you look in, this is kind of your homework, go home and look in chapter of Matthew chapter 23, right? He says, hey, the Pharisees, they, they sit at the feet of Moses, right? You need to listen to what they tell you. Just don't do what they do because they don't do what they say that they're going to do. They're hypocrites. So there, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't bagging on the Pharisees he was bagging on it for being hypocrites, not necessarily because of wrong interpretations. Although he did disagree with their interpretations, that really wasn't the issue, is that they, they were hypocritical. They were making everybody follow all these laws, and sometimes they themselves weren't doing it. Right? So just kind of kind of clear up that all. So he would often engage with them in this ongoing dialogue, right, on how best to interpret what's been written given current circumstances. These interpretations and legal applications are collectively known as the oral Torah. So we have the written Torah, first five books of the Bible. You all got them right there in your Bible. And then we have this thing called the Mishnah. It was written down about 100 years after Jesus died. It was all of these interpretations. For example, we have the law of the land here in this nation. We have the Constitution. That's the written law. For the Jewish people, that was Torah. So then we have all these justices, we have the Republican Party, we have the Democratic Party, we have all these nonprofits, we have all these people interpreting the Constitution, right? They're either interpreting conservatively or liberally. The same exact same thing is going on with the Jewish people. They've got their Torah, their Constitution, and then you've got a whole bunch of political parties, and you've got a whole bunch of interest groups all interpreting, this is what he really meant. Oh, that's what they really meant, either conservatively or liberally, in our, either a Democrat or a Republican, kind of, and literally that's what's going on in this, this day. Um, so like our court system, right, oral Torah was developed in response to the need to apply the law in different circumstances and different cultural contexts. That makes Torah a living document, right? It continues to be interpreted with situations that change over time. Now, Get a little detail here. The Pharisees were the biggest and most powerful party. Sadducees were there, but they weren't nearly as big as the Pharisees. Um, and, and all of these people, these political parties, members, all these people who are members of these political parties, which Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and these different groups, um, they generally followed one of two rabbis, right? Rabbi Shemaiah or Rabbi Hillel. And, and these two guys, you know, 100, 300, 400 years earlier, they would have been different rabbis. But at this time, these were the two most prominent rabbis, right? And I want you to just take a hit that next slide there, Kevin. Uh, uh, Rabbi Shemaiah lived about, he was doing his work about 100 years BC, so about 120 years before Jesus. Uh, Hillel dies when Jesus is like six years old, so he's a little bit more current. Now, I just want to ask you, just, just a wild guess, you don't have to call out your answer. Which do you think Jesus sided with more often? Just from what you know, like just have some fun guessing. Do you think he was super strict or conservative, or do you think he was loose and liberal with his interpretations? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I, well, I'll just tell you right now. Uh, the answer is um, he, he sided with Hillel, like 99%. There is one time that he sides with Shemaiah, and that's part of your homework too. You got to go find that. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk later. Um, but, and it, by the way, it's not going to say this is what Shemaiah said. You're going to have to do some digging, right? 
So again, in most cases, Jesus agrees with Hillel's interpretations. Now, in the book of Mark, if you start in chapter 11, Mark literally begins to walk you through some of these discussions. And he shows you what, the, what Shemaiah or Hillel said, and then we find out what, how Jesus interprets that burning issue of the day. So again, if you go home and you look through chapter 11, right, it's this crazy. It starts off uh, at the end of chapter 11, you got this discussion about the comparative authority of Jesus, right, because he's going around interpreting scripture. So they're like, uh, we don't remember you in school. Where did you come from? And how did you get so smart? So they're asking him, well, how are you doing this, right? Because they can't figure it out. And then there's a discussion about the relative comparative authority of God and Caesar, and then a whole discussion about the afterlife and, and marriage brought on by the Sadducees, because the Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife, right? So they're going to kind of, they're going to make fun of Jesus at this point, and they're going to bring up a story from the Apocrypha, from the book of Tobit, in which a woman marries, because in Jewish law, if you, if you marry a, a, a man and he dies, his brother takes his place so that the, the wealth can stay and you don't become a, a de de destitute, right, as the widow. And so in this story, in the, in the Apocrypha Book of Tobit, she ends up with seven husbands, like they die one after the other. And the Sadducees are going to kind of make fun of Jesus. How can there be an afterlife and how can there be marriage when, what, what's this woman going to do with seven husbands? And they think they've got Jesus, right? But here's the crazy thing. After Jesus shreds their interpretation on both the afterlife and marriage, right, the nearby teacher of the law was impressed, so he's watching this. And by the way, he's a Pharisee, and he's really loving the fact that Jesus just shut down the Sadducees. He's like, yes, right? So he's really happy, and he's impressed with Jesus' interpretation of the law, right? So noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. The teacher of the law liked the way that Jesus, and again, we've looked at this before, the way Jesus fulfilled or correctly interpreted the law. Whenever you see that in Scripture, that Jesus will fulfill the law, it's not only this idea that he'll do it all correctly, but that he bodily and all of his actions and all of his words are the perfect interpretation of Scripture, right? He, he himself, right, is just this, this perfect, perfect. And, and so this teacher of the law was like just thrilled with the way Jesus fulfilled or correctly interpreted the law. And he loved the way that Jesus had proven that these Sadducees had nullified or canceled or abolished, those are all the terms, wrongly interpreting Scripture. So this Pharisee is watching the Sadducee get just destroyed by Jesus, and the Sadducee clearly interpreted wrong, and Jesus clearly interpreted it correctly, Right? Something else I think might have caught that, that, that teacher, his attention. If you notice in, this, in, the, in the Gospels, um, normally this is the way a rabbi um, would teach. They would say, you've heard it said. Right? You've heard it said of old. And inevitably, they're going to now quote either Shemaiah or Hillel or some equally prominent rabbi. And then they're going to expound on what this rabbi taught. They're not going to introduce anything new. They're just going to expound. You've heard it said. Now, this, this teacher of the law had noticed that Jesus does this a little bit differently. You, you got to remember what Jesus does? He starts out, you've heard it said, or you've heard it of old said. And instead of going on and talking about Shema Hillel, what does Jesus say? But I say, and they're like, what? Only God can say that. Only God can say that. Because all the prophets and all the scribes and all the Pharisees, and all, they were only interpreters, and they saw themselves only as interpreters. 
Everyone, even the prophets before them, nothing more than interpreters or messengers of God. Right? In, in their words, what, what, what phrase do we have? Thus saith the Lord. Not you've heard it said, and not I say, but thus saith the Lord. Right? They had no authority, and they knew this, except that authority given by God to speak his words. Thus says the Lord. But the people quickly recognized that Jesus spoke with, like one with authority, not like the regular teachers of the law or any other authority, right? And this is incredibly important to the common person because they were struggling under the sheer number of interpretations and laws. And they're like, oh, come on, man, stop adding, stop adding. Like this is getting really, 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 really difficult. And it was called putting a fence around the Torah, right? This is what the rabbis were doing. And the idea is, so you got the Ten Commandments or the 613 laws that they could find in Scripture. That's the way they counted them up. They found 613 specific commandments in the written Torah. So their idea is that they would put a fence around these 613 commands, and then they would come up with a whole bunch of man-made laws to keep you from breaking the biggies. Let's take, let's take honor the Sabbath. Well, I don't know if I break that or don't break that. I mean, I need some details, right? Just honor the Sabbath. So the rabbis wrote a whole bunch of interpretations. Don't carry, it, don't carry anything more than a certain amount of yards, right? If you have a rope, you can, it can be a bra strap. I kid you not, but it can't be a woven rope. Right? So they had all these, law, all these rules, and the idea is all these small laws, if you didn't break any of the small laws, then you didn't break the big law and become death. So the idea is, again, all these little laws, right? The main idea is true and valid. Small sins lead to greater sins. We all know this, right? So pay attention to the smaller sins, and you won't have to worry about the big sins. This was basic rabbi teaching, we have this idea, right? So love your neighbor as yourself. Um, uh, well, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you'll end up hating them when they do something wrong to you. And if they do something wrong enough, you're going to seek revenge. And if it's a big enough error on their part, you're going to kill them. This is the way they, they reasoned. Small sins lead to the biggies. So don't commit the small sins. Now, the problem is this led to an incredibly rigid and legalistic system. Right, all these laws, and then all the interpretations. Like the, the, the list was insane. It was just huge. So let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Watch this. This is what Jesus does instead. You've heard it said long ago, right? That's, that's kind of the phrase. Uh, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. And now he's quoting, and I'm not sure which rabbi he's quoting, but this is literally what he's doing right now. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then he says, but I say, and he lists like 20 more things, right? Even from the very, very small to the actual murder. And, you're, and he says, like, if you do any of these things, you've actually committed murder. And I'm like, what? I thought it was just don't murder. And then he continues in the next passage. He says this, um, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. And then he lists like 20 things that if I do also, I've actually committed adultery. And, and, and it continues, you know, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Again, you've heard it said that it was people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you. And in every one of these situations, he adds a whole bunch more. 
And he concludes with the one that nobody really likes. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And you know what he then says. You're like, I don't want to do that. Pray for my enemies. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? He's fencing in the Torah. He's doing the exact same thing that the rabbis were doing. You you stay away from the big laws by not breaking the little laws. It, it, It makes total sense. But the way Jesus does it is radically different. Watch this. This just blows my mind. Traditionally, they would add they, they, these, these uh, laws outside the Torah, the, outside the written law, these man-made laws. Um, the, the idea was that these were minimum requirements of the law, right? You were holy if you did these things and you didn't do those things. And really... If you think about it, and, and this is in fact true, they weren't trying to make the list long, right? Because if you're a Pharisee and you're making this list, you recognize you got to follow it too. So they weren't trying to make a long list. They were just trying to define the bare minimum requirements of what God had commanded. The bare minimum requirements. Get that, kind of stick that in your head just a little bit. But Jesus took the exact opposite approach. He, he asked for maximum requirements, right? He focused on the ultimate aim of the law, right? True holiness, not just enough holiness. It's like, man, aim higher, Jesus is saying. And again, as the author of the Torah, he was alone the one that was able to say, here's what God meant. I happen to know. You don't need to guess. There's no interpretation needed. I know exactly what the intent was, right? And these are the bare minimum required to be holy. Nothing more, nothing less. That's kind of the way they had it. And ultimately... Jesus isn't asking us for the maximum to, like, frustrate us or to make us try harder, right? He's simply asking us to redirect our aim, right? Don't live by the minimum. Don't think it's okay to look at other women as long as I don't commit adultery, right? Don't, don't Don't think that. Don't think it's okay to, you know, hate my neighbor as long as I don't crank phone call them, right? No, that's... That's, that's not, that's the minimum. No, no, go, go for the maximum, right? Don't ask how little can I do, but how much can I do, by the way, because that's the way God did it. And he continues to do it. He asks us, how much can I do for you? Not how little I can do for you. By changing our aim, we're released from the burden of keeping track of all the things that we might have done wrong, and we can focus on the infinite, limitless list of loving things that we can do. God is simply asking, stop worrying about these little, these 613, whatever, and things that you're not supposed to do. Just, I'll cover them. Just love people. Just love people. Don't worry about all that stuff. You take too much time worrying about that stuff. You don't have time or energy to love people. Just just love people. Matthew records it like this. Verse 20, chapter 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, go beyond. Right? Go beyond. Don't do what the strictest interpreters are saying. Go beyond. If they ask for a mile, give them two miles. Right? If they slap one cheek, give them your other cheek. Right? If they ask for your cloak, give them your shirt. Absolutely key to this, too, is that he's not asking us to be stricter than the strictest interpreter per se. What he's asking us to do is to model our lives on God, 
Model our lives on the generosity of God. That's all he's doing. Aim for that. Don't aim for minimums. Nobody wins when we aim for minimums. Here's the other, the burning question of the day. I'm going to conclude with this question. The burning question of the day. Again, they had all these laws, man-made laws, and they didn't want to make a whole bunch of them because they had to follow them too, right? And they knew that Jesus was already bagging on them because they were being hypocritical. They knew they couldn't keep all the laws, so they tried to fake it. Jesus knew they were all white and looking good on the outside, but they were filthy and dead on the inside. He wasn't, he wasn't hard on them because they had necessarily had the wrong interpretations, just they had too many, too many. And so this, this whole idea of the, 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 um, the rabbis and so forth, they decided, could we, could we boil all these laws down to, like, I don't know, a term I keep hearing today in, in science, the singularity, right? If you could find one principle, one principle, because this whole list is getting out of hand, Right, so at the same time that we're making this list to protect you from violating the, the, the biggies, um, they're also trying to boil it down to, to, to principles, right, so that you don't have to keep track of 613. They knew how difficult that was. They knew. And they knew the burden was on the people, but they couldn't help it. They, they were just trying to make the people holy. They, they had the right intentions, but they were just going about it in an incredibly legalistic and rigid fashion. So the rabbis are asking... This is the burning question of the day, the biggest question that they were all asking. Can you boil all these 613 down? Can you just boil them down? And so at some point, this is actually after the life of Jesus, a whole bunch of rabbis got together, right? And they looked throughout the scripture, the 613 commandments that they felt that God had given in the written Torah. And they decided, are there any, any writers of Scripture who already did the work, who boiled it all down? And they did find a couple. Check this out. In Micah, they found he had boiled it down to three, right? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And then they found Isaiah had boiled it down to two, right? Maintain justice and do what is right. A little iffy on that second one, but it was two, right? And then Amos and Habakkuk, they boiled it down to one each, right? Seek the Lord, and live by righteousness. So when Jesus is asked by that teacher of the law who was so fascinated and thrilled with the way he answered that question of the Sadducees and the way he had correctly interpreted Scripture and fulfilled Scripture, right? He gets asked that same, same exact question. Here's the question of the day. Of all the commandments, which is the one that's most important, this is the singularity question. Now, about 40 years earlier, Hillel, right, remember Hillel? He had been asked the exact same question by a very, very impatient and rude Gentile. This, this is the story. And the Gentile's like, look, just explain the whole, basically, Torah, explain the whole Bible while standing on one foot. Right? You ever heard that in business school? You need to be able to make your sales pitch in an elevator ride, or you need to, in evangelistic classes you ever took, you need to make your pitch in the length it takes to take an elevator ride. You know, you need to boil it down, your, your testimony. Well, this is what's going on. He's like, hello, boil it down while you're standing on one foot, so make it short. So this is what he says. Now, now this is crucial. What Hillel is saying is if there is any other way that you interpret Scripture, if you, if you boil it down to anything other than this, then you have nullified, you have canceled, you have misinterpreted Scripture. This is Hillel's opinion. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. 
This is the whole Torah and the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Right? You think about that law just a minute. And it's like, um, right? If you can pull off this minimum requirement, right? How minimum is this? You don't have to do a thing. Just don't actively hate anybody. You don't have to do a nice loving thing at all. Just don't do any harm. And we're all holy. What? That's crazy. Right? Compare this to how Jesus answers the exact same question. Watch this. He says just the opposite. He says this. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? So he's beginning to quote the Shema, which was the daily prayer of the Jewish people. And he continues. Verse 30, love the Lord your God. You've all heard this many times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, love God. Good job, Jesus. You boiled it down to one. That was the goal. Good job, Jesus. And the, the crowd's like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. You know, we're good Jewish people. Love God. Makes total sense. But Jesus wasn't done. He says, and the second is this. And at this point, you got to understand the whole place kind of went quiet. And they're like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand what we're doing here. We're trying to boil it down. Now you're starting to add again. No, no, Jesus, you got this all wrong. You just, just stop. Just stop it. Love God. We're good. But he doesn't. The second is like this. Love the, your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this. There's no commandment. That's a singular word. There's no commandment. Greater than these, the plural word. Why two? Why didn't he stick with one? Douglas, I noticed, stuck with one, just love God. I think Douglas might have missed it by just a hair. What Jesus is doing, he's doing again. He's being a typical rabbi of the day. He's setting, he has found two truths from two different passages of scripture, right? Love your God is from Deuteronomy chapter four or six, now I can't, chapter six. And then love your neighbor as yourself is from Exodus. Two totally different truths. And if you'll notice, they're kind of opposite. One is love God and one is love people. Those are two different things. Two radically different things. And what he's doing, he's setting two truths in two different passages in tension with one another. And he's saying that as you read Scripture, if you come to any question, your interpretation has to 100% love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it has to 100% love your neighbor. Don't split the difference. You can't half love God and half love your neighbor. That's just being selfish and mean. You have to come up with an interpretation that does honor and justice to both loving God and loving your neighbor. And any interpretation that doesn't 100% love God and 100% love your neighbor, you've missed the point is what John is saying here. If you try to do only one or two, one or the other of these things, you lose out, everybody loses out. If we love God only, right, our neighbor becomes a distraction, right? We know this. Do I got to go help them? I was really looking forward to watching Desperate Housewives. <sighs> right? You, you, know, you know the feeling. We've all had it. Like, oh, I got to go to that thing. Uh. If we love God only, right, people become distractions. And we tend to love Bible studies more than the soup kitchen. Just be honest with ourselves here. But if we love our neighbor only without God, we run out of energy. And we run out of... we we. we <laughs> Really, really good causes take really, really weird turns. You ever seen organizations do this? They start off with really, really beautiful, godly purposes, and then they, they just kind of get weird, like they left God at the station, 
And they, 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 they did it on their own. So if we try to love God or love our neighbor by themselves, we, we lose out. Both, both lose out. Jesus is saying that love is the best possible interpretation of the laws. The ultimate summation of everything in Scripture taught about God can be summed up in these two commands. Love him and love your neighbor. And those are in tension with one another. They, they, sometimes they don't get along. Like we want to love God, but no, our neighbor, so I'll just love God. Woo-wee, I'm okay. No. What is it, in chapter 5 of Matthew says, look, if you've got a problem with a neighbor and you're down here at my altar, get out of here. Go fix that thing with your neighbor and then come and honor me. You've got to honor both 100%. Can't split the difference. Love fulfills the law. Here's how Paul sums up our entire series. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Net, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, we have some burning issues. I mentioned a few of them. Immigration, sexual identity, orientation, all the racial issues, biblical authority. I mean, we've got some issues, and I'll just tell you right now, I don't have the answer to any of them. But I see in the life of Jesus, and I hear in his words, God whispering to me, just love them. I'll worry about sorting them out. Just love them. If my Holy Spirit wants to convict them to change something, that's my Holy Spirit's job. That's not your job. Your job is to love them so that they can hear my Spirit speak. Because if you don't love them, then they will not listen to God's Spirit. Just love them. And here's the hardest part, and I think this is what First John was talking about. Love them on their terms. Don't force them to come to your terms. You got to love them on their terms. That's what God did. He loved us on our terms. He came to our place. He lived in our neighborhood. He didn't wait for us to get to his beautiful, rich, wonderful neighborhood. He came to ours. Don't worry about the sorting because my Holy Spirit is incredibly inspiring. Don't worry. Just love. Just love. Bow your heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible passage in Mark. Matthew has it also. Um, we do, you call us to love you, but you also call us to love our neighbors. And Father, sometimes that's, boy, that's hard to juggle those two. And yet you say, just do it. Find a way to love people. If you can do that, then you found a way to love me the way I want to be loved. And Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, what he showed us, what he demonstrated, what he proved, that his words were true, that you are all about love, and that you desperately want to be with us eternally, and you've given us a free gift. So, Father, anyone in this room who wants to accept that free gift, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, Father, I trust you entirely. I've made a mess of things. I don't know that much about you, but, man, you sound really good. And so I, I trust you. And if you just, that simple prayer, I, I guarantee you right now that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to speak into your life. You're going to be confused sometimes. You're going to be challenged sometimes. You're going to be elated sometimes, but it's never going to be the same because you've been called out by love. 
Father, thank you for any person watching on TV, sitting in this auditorium, that for the very first time today, they decided to trust you, to let go of the reins and start reading your word and finding out what does this life really all mean? What am I supposed to be about? So, Father, we thank you for everything that you've done this morning because we know you've been working before, you're working now, you're going to work after. And that's just, just what your word says. So we thank you for that, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.